This is Champagne Problems, where we come together to explore the gray areas of drinking. This is a judgment-free zone where we can all take a look at how we make decisions about our relationship with alcohol. Welcome back to Champagne Problems. We are here today with Edwin McCain. Man, are we excited to have Edwin on today. Edwin was coined the Great Romantic by the New York Times. After a 20-plus year career and recording two of the greatest love songs in pop history, he continues to tour America performing over 100 shows a year. It has been quoted that his shows are nights that feel more like parties with old friends than rock concerts. Sounds fun to me. I think that speaks to the type of talented and down-to-earth guy he is. Edwin had his battles with addiction and got clean back in 2007. Since then, he's continued down the path of rock and roll, all while raising a family and giving back to the industry and fans that were so gracious to him in his early years. Edwin is an inspiration, and if I might add, a total stud and man among men. We are delighted to have him on the show and can't wait to dive in. What an honor to have you on, Edwin. Thanks for agreeing to participate in our podcast, and welcome to Champagne Problems. Happy to be here. Thanks for having me. I'm going to start kind of selfishly around the topic of creativity, because that is something that I absolutely love talking about. It is an interesting topic, um, mainly because I think it relates so well to, to mental health. And not that you need to be mentally healthy to, to be creative, but just the creative process in itself is therapeutic. You know, there needs to be presence, ability to block things out, stream of conscience. It's therapeutic in nature and, and a fascinating state to be in when you're, when you're at your most creative. I would love to hear about your creative process and more specifically what it used to be compared to what it is as you've grown in your life? My creative process in my 20s, I used to make the joke, I'm going to have to go throw myself down a hill. And somewhere in the process of getting up and, you know, doctoring my wounds, I would find the creative sort of spark. And I'm not sure how valid that really was, um, because I think that, it was more of a of an excuse to face the fear of being creative. I was kind of constantly using the the idea and the ideas and being creative to sort of rescue me from from the peril. Use it like a rope ladder out of the fire. That was a little a story that I told myself that sort of gave me permission to act however I wanted to act. And I like to think that, that I would have been a lot more creative had I not wasted a lot of the time with the hangovers and all the other stuff. But there's a certain, and I used to invoke the Hemingway clause all the time. <laughs> that you had to be sort of a hopeless alcoholic to be truly in touch with, with that. But I, I think that's, a, that's convenient. Yeah. From what I can gather and from what I've read about the human mind, like, you know, we're, we're just more creative in our twenties. Right. That's just right. how it goes. And I noticed that like in my fifties, I'm, I'm creative, but in different ways. Like, and, and the reason why you're more creative in your twenties is that you don't have any stored experience that uh, informs your ideas. And now at 50, I have a whole lifetime of experiences that go, yeah, that's a nice thought, but it's not very realistic. So what I find is that what the poetry that I discover now is in a sticky handprint that my daughter left on a wall, and I mine the poetry out of these tiny little real things. Um, whereas in my 20s, I spoke in these big global themes where mm -hmm. I didn't really know. It's like when I hear, I listen to all these 20-year-old songwriters, and they sing in these big hopeful themes and they talk about their feelings like they're the only ones that have ever felt that way it's for them and it's because that's the way they feel it makes them believe that there's a bigger world out there that they're missing and they gotta get out there to it but everything's holding them back and nothing's fair and all that <laughs> shit that we felt when yeah. sean kelly from the samples sang that first note and waited up all night long you know 
And, and we all went, oh, there's a girl for me out there. And there's a car that's faster and a drug that's stronger. And this is bullshit. And I, my parents put on that Phil Collins record again. I'm going to kill myself. <laughs> and, and, and we're all participating in the cycle of all of it. And I think it's hilarious. And, and I did, I did, my son was, you know, he's 15 and he was, or at the time he was like 13, he was listening to Juice World, and, and I heard him hit this one note and I was like, oh, okay, I know what this is. I said, I said, you want me to freak you out a little bit? And he goes, what? And I go, I'm going to freak you out a little bit. And he goes, how? And I was like, I'm going to play you my generation's version of Juice World. And I put on the samples record and. This is what made us feel the way Juice World makes you feel, and he was like, "Whoa!" And I was like, "Yes, yeah, it's, 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 it's the wolf's it's the wolf's call, buddy. Everybody everybody has it, and you're gonna go out there and have it, and you know, this is what this is. We're all in it. We're all in that. So, all that roundabout to say, I don't try to have the creativity that I had in my twenties because the creativity I have now comes much more from here than it did from all the other spots it was coming from in my 20s a decent path for for them to follow if they want to but you know i've got one son who who hears what i has have to say and <laughs> and believes me and then i have my middle son who is a hundred percent genetically me and <laughs> is not going to be told any single yeah. thing. And if there's an easy way to do it, yeah. he's not doing that. Awesome, man. Cool answer. You know, I want to go back to when you were in your twenties and creating and because I love the idea that, you know, in comparison, you know, we always talk about alcohol and, 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 and how alcohol, you know, works at first, you know, it works. You can actually relate that to the creative process as well, because I know it works for that. I know it does. It, it helps guards come down. It helps inhibitions come down and you can be free and let your, let your conscience go until it stops working. And you know, we know that story. Well, the thing, the thing that they don't really teach uh, parents and is not very well uh, known is the statistic about kids and alcohol, teenagers and alcohol. I hear from a lot of parents, oh yeah, we let our kids drink. They, they're, mm -hmm. they're totally cool. Yeah. Now. Yeah. My kids drink and you know, they've never had a problem and, and they, they're always real responsible. I'm like, yeah, that's really the first sign of chronic alcoholism. <laughs> it's working well. They're going to keep doing it. They're like, what? And I'm like, yeah, I, I was yeah. the kid that could drink and yeah. talk to the cops and drive everybody home. And, <laughs> and like, I, I was Dr. Johnny Fever, man. It made me better. Yeah. Yeah, me too. Don't misunderstand. I've never had a DUI. Like, yeah. you know, so. Professional. Yeah. Statistically, the kids <laughs> that have their first few drinks and barf and pass out, they're never going to have a problem with alcohol because no. they've responded appropriately to alcohol. Yeah. But that's the mistake is because everybody goes, oh, well, you're good at this. You're fine. Yeah, you can yeah. handle. My kid can drink more than me. You can handle your liquor. Big, giant, red flag. Yeah. Fortunately for me, drugs were part of my program, and it's just like pressing fast forward to the end. Yeah. Yeah, me too. Yeah. Because it really got me to the chronic, you have to make a decision moment a lot faster. Right. Because I could have limped along as an alcoholic for uh, easily another 20 yeah. years because at my probably most alcoholic was my highest earning moment. I picked a profession that I could show up in a Viking helmet and a tutu <laughs> and everybody's like, Oh yeah, it's going to be a great night. Yeah. Hell yeah. <laughs> so sold out. Yeah. He plays better when he's puking. <laughs> <laughs> Get him out of the bunk and slap him around, give him a couple Red Bulls. It's going to be fun. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's the case for a lot of people, right? Where they really can keep the wheels on the bus for a very long time at a dysfunctional level. We call it functional because they still have a job and they're performing well and they're taking care of their household and whatever, but it's a dysfunctional level of alcohol use. And we know that there is an end. We're just kind of hoping that something intervenes before they really have lost a lot of time or a lot of potential of the opposite of just what it could have been or what those years could have been for them. Like put the blinders on and look. Yeah. 
So for me, I, I know that this is a hard one too, is when I talk to people about to detach and shut, you know, mm -hmm. stop communicating. And they're like, oh, what? Yeah, you got to stop talking to them. One of my greatest high school friends refused to talk to me, mm -hmm. you know, and I was like, ah, okay. Yeah. You know, I, the silence was deafening. Yeah. And then you start to go, okay, yeah, this has definitely gotten into a, we, we got we got ourselves a problem here. So, um, and it seems counterintuitive that, that cutting off people is helpful, but it really is. Well, it's intuitive, but it's counter biology, right? It feels really wrong, but I think it goes into what you were talking about earlier of just, if we continue those relationships in the healthy manner that they kind of would normally be operating in, that adds to our narrative of why we can keep drinking. Cause it's like, but everything's intact. My problem, my drinking can't be that big of a problem. If I can have everything I want, have everything in my life as normal while I'm drinking, there's clearly not a problem. So until someone says you can't drink the way that you're drinking and have me in your life, that's the first opportunity someone's had to go, Oh, maybe I need to remove drinking. Yeah. It, it, it's a dangerous conversation to have because then you have to stick by it. Right. <laughs> right. I'm going to jump in on a totally different kind of conversation here. It was one of the things I was hoping to really pick your brain about Edwin. It's more in the space of any clients or anyone that we work with, anyone that might be listening as well, that can a be drawn to the music world um, because of some of the lifestyle and because of the glamorizing of kind of the rock and roll drinking, doing drugs kind of scene and, and be the other population where they're really terrified because they really want to be a performer and want to be in that world, but do not necessarily want the involvement with alcohol or drugs. And I'm just curious for you kind of what some of the advice would be around, whether it be young people or, you know, anyone kind of entering that field, just what can that look like when alcohol and drugs are not involved? You know, on both sides of the coin, you know, for the last 14 years, I've been out there playing happily without any, um, you know, interest or involvement. But as someone early in recovery, I kind of had to put some some guards in place. Like I didn't hang out after shows, and mm -hmm. you you have to be kind of mm -hmm. careful. You got to be careful because it's obviously you, you know you're basically you're you're in the midst of it. Um, mm -hmm. But one of the things I've noticed, you know, obviously there are people now that never even have to go play a live gig and they, their creative life is, is almost completely online. Oh, yeah. And I think it's been right. really neat to see that outlet open up because there, I knew painfully shy people who, who were so wonderfully creative and so talented, but absolutely were not made to be on a stage in front of right. me. It was hard to watch them almost be forced onto the stage and, and they, they struggled with it. But now they don't have to because they can sit in their bedrooms and be creative and beautiful. And I think a lot, there's a whole other population of musicians and artists that are gonna benefit from that uh, reality. Mm -hmm. There There's a lot wider understanding of what that lifestyle can lead to and it's not necessarily as ubiquitous as it was 25 years ago i mean i, right. I didn't know i didn't know any sober bands back then um and we had a rule like we were always sober on stage like our, our we never drank before shows like that was mm -hmm. important that was an important thing but that didn't say that we weren't hung over as shit from the night before. Right. <laughs> so, but the rule was that nobody was actively drinking on stage. And so and most of the best bands sort of followed that, that mantra. I didn't know that. Cause you're working, right? It's like, that's your job. Well, and it worked for a long time. So I think, again, my situation probably would have probably would have become a lot more chronic earlier had we broken right. that rule. And honestly, near the end, I did break that rule like one or two times, like on a, like on some weird celebrity pro-am golf tournament, I got wasted with John Daly. Like we, we, we started like, please tell that story. Oh no, we teed off at like 9am. 
and I was with him and he was drinking and Johnny Lee and we were all cutting up and I was like, well, I can get drunk at, until noon and then sleep and then get up and finish, play the show at eight and be fine. <laughs> no, that no. is not how, that is not how that went. Come on, Edwin. <laughs> Dude, it's John Daly. But here's the worst part about that story is that I was so drunk that it was embarrassing to my band. And I literally just sat, I went to the microphone and said, listen, I am absolutely hammered. I apologize. <laughs> I'm going to try to finish this show acoustically. And if I can't, then that's just what it is. And the problem is, is that the whole crowd was like, <laughs> yay. Uh, uh, nice. There's no consequence to that. Right. You go. Oh man. Like even, even then I thought, Oh God, I was kind of hoping that this was good. There was going to be a consequence to this so I could actually yeah. have a reason to get my shit together, yeah. but no. Yeah. yeah. Nope. And when you touched on a little bit of um, like early on when you were first getting sober, some of the modifications that you would make just to make shows a little bit safer or performing. Do you remember any of the other things that you had maybe done any tips or tricks that helped early on just in that scene? Uh, I talked about it a lot. I'd still talk about it on stage. Like I talk about my recovery experience. I make a joke here and there and like, and then I feel the crowd recoil <laughs> in horror. <laughs> and then I always, you know, I always give it a big long beat, like where, so everybody can feel good and uncomfortable. And I remind them that I'm not recruiting, you know, right. you're, uh, you're okay. I'm not recruiting you to yeah. the sober village. Oh, dude, yeah. that's great. <laughs> but it, but it speaks to the stigma that's still attached to it. Like I, it, it's it's amazing to this day how, how much stigma is attached to substance use disorder, and and the fact that we even call it substance use disorder speaks to the stigma because mm -hmm. we have substance use disorder because that feels safer mm -hmm. to the general public. We can't be alcoholics or drug addicts. Like like, but anyway, so I always, you know gently remind everybody like it's we're we're not those people right we're you and and if you're sitting in the audience hearing what i have to say right now and you've been thinking about getting sober today's the day mm. like there's no more yeah there's no contemplation that there's no further contemplation you need if it's something right. that's been in the back of your mind you're it get to work you know so can I ask you, is that something that you do to help you when you are sharing kind of at and the giving back piece? If you hear me talking about recovery in a social setting, I am not looking for an attaboy. I'm not bragging about like how much time I have. I'm reminding myself that this is not for me. Nice. I'm, this is not me trying to impress you or recruit anybody. I, all I'm doing is openly voicing the truth that I am not capable of having a drink right. without it going off the rails. And that's all it is. And so, and I tell that to my audience. What kind of led to you deciding that alcohol wasn't going to be in your life anymore? Uh, like every body, you, you go through the process of the attempts to control where you say, okay, well, I'm not going to drink for, you know, three months or Lent. Or, or then mm. I'm not going to drink liquor anymore. Or I'm only mm. going to drink on the, you know, you see all the little like tweaks. Did, did you do all those? Yeah, everybody does. Every single yeah. bite. Every yeah. person you've ever known is version of the attempt to control. And so uh, I even went as far as I, I didn't drink for a year just to prove to my friends and family that I wasn't an alcoholic. I was like, look, you guys like, think I got a problem. I'm like, look, I tell you what, I'll put it down. And I'll put it down for a year and show you all that I'm not an alcoholic. Like that's how big an alcoholic I was. Like mm -hmm. I literally white knuckled it for a year to get. So that you could drink. Unrestricted use. A little, little tolerance break. Yeah. 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 So, so, and they bought it like, hey, it works. That was a, <laughs> that was a brilliant scheme on my part. I went as far as getting bipolar diagnosis from a psychologist, a psychiatrist here in town. That, dude, that that bipolar diagnosis is a free, you know, it's like a get out of jail free card. I'm not an alcoholic. Yeah. I'm bipolar. Right. Like, uh -huh. like, like, not like. Think about the the logic that goes into that, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> not much. 
but but I heard that over and over again. So this is all part of it. So then you know then uh, um then I wore it around like a cape. Like I was like, okay, well I can't stop this, so I'm just gonna I'm gonna go with it. I'm just gonna strap this on like a pirate outfit and say arg. And I did that for a while, like the Hemingway clause. You know, you invoke mm-hmm. the Hemingway clause, and I did that for a while. But then, um, like everybody knows, it just gets darker and darker and more dangerous. And then the 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 ideation, you start to realize, like, this is not just dangerous for me. This is becoming dangerous for the general public. There, yeah. I don't know what's going to happen. Right. And I don't know what's going to happen that could include mayhem and injury to other people. Uh, you know, and you had the wherewithal and had that awareness like as this was happening. Oh, uh, yeah. As it was happening. Like, and, and I remember because because then you start to think, well, there's one way to stop this for good. There's one way that's really going to stop this because nothing else is going to stop it. And so that starts to make sense. And then I, I found myself checking the life insurance policies and making sure they would pay out. And that was kind of that moment where, you know, I found myself at the final jumping off place with a, with a, a 40 cal in my lap. And you go, okay, it, it, what, what are you going to do? Right. Yeah. And, and so I went, I, I, I said, well, one thing you haven't tried yet is treatment. So let's try that. And if that doesn't work, then you can come back to this. Mm-hmm. So I, I went to treatment and after a week, I mustered up the courage to tell everybody how far I had gotten and the whole story. And I got to the end of my horrific story that I thought was going to shock them all. And this guy, <laughs> look, this guy looks at, the guy turns to me, got in my left, turns to me and goes, yeah, welcome to the club, asshole. <laughs> <laughs> so, ah. You, wait, you mean everybody here? Yeah, all of us. Everybody <laughs> here got to your spot. And I was like, oh, okay. And and like all of a sudden, I was like, oh, I'm in I'm in my field of bees. Like we're all we're all equally uh, suffering from a chronic brain disease that follows patterns and leads us all here because we aren't supposed to have this result. Like, this is not, like, we shouldn't all have the exact same story. So that, to me, that was my moment where I said, oh, okay, so I haven't been driving for a while. Just tell me what I need to do to get my autonomy back. Because my story is, should not line up with the 75-year-old dentist from Phoenix, <laughs> right? We shouldn't be saying all the same stuff. We shouldn't have all exactly the same story. Like every every result we've had for the last eighteen months is exactly the same to the minute. It's like the Truman Show, dude. You're like, wow. what the fuck is going? None on? of this is real. Oh, okay, great. So now I don't have to listen to a single thought in my head. You can just tell me what I'm supposed to do until mm-hmm. I get out of it, and then I can slowly start to recover my consciousness and move on. I think that's a a really important piece, though, because I do think that there's this myth, especially amongst kind of the gray area drinkers or maybe folks who haven't progressed quite to their dark space yet, right, where alcohol helps me connect with people. Alcohol helps me feel involved. Alcohol is a social lubricant. And really what you're describing is actually sheer isolation with alcohol. Alcohol gives me norepinephrine and dopamine that I normally would get by interacting with people, but it's way easier to get it with alcohol. So now I believe that alcohol is the reason that I'm getting this dopamine and norepinephrine as opposed to the way we should normally be getting it. It's, it's way easier. I mean, there's never been a question. And you want a big flood of norepinephrine, dopamine, and, and just drink a shot of alcohol. It's way easier than having a, a meaningful relationship with somebody else <laughs> having to walk through un- anxiety and uncomfortability of course it is but then but part of that too is that process of of not having alcohol is that part of your brain you know the amygdala gets hijacked and it and mm-hmm. and if it doesn't have its alcohol it just makes you an- anxious and uncomfortable and makes you believe that there's a tiger lurking in the tall grass and it's all part of a you know, 200,000 year old evolutionary chain that 
it, a long time ago, those instincts kept us alive. But yeah, now yeah. it's just alcohol trying to kill us. It's a, a result of our, we live in, in plenty and we're just not made for it. Yeah. Well, and I think when you can get those chemicals elsewhere it way easier, then you don't need people as much. And that distancing happens and suddenly you've got family members that want to tiptoe and don't want to intervene. And you've got Edwin on stage begging for someone to go, Edwin, that's unacceptable. You need to get help. And no one's getting what they need out of the whole process, right, as your alcoholism progresses. Yeah. And, yeah. and, and that's a, you know, I've worked with a lot, like the hardest people to get into a recovery mindset are the most successful yep. and the most yep. brilliant. Amen. Like, Amen. like, honestly, like the, like the, like I have a, I had a friend of mine for, for years. I mean, he's an MBA from Harvard. I, I don't want to say too much, but like, I literally, like, he's one of the smartest people I've ever known and just absolutely chronic. Mm -hmm. And, and, and he would call me and then argue with me. Like, Dude, you called, you called me. I need help. No, I don't. And I, and I remember at one point, I was like, dude, just why don't you call Harvard and, and just get them to send you a list of all the MBAs that are currently homeless and living on the street. Uh, right. And, and, and if the list is longer than you, I'll leave you alone. <laughs> so uh, you don't have to be mean about it. I was like, I kind of feel like I do. I kind of feel like I do. But, but that's the thing is it's, it's, there's that we part of our hardwiring is that we are, problem solving geniuses and we are convinced that we can outthink this part of our brain but the problem is the amygdala is so deep down in there it's only sending one-way messages it ain't, it ain't right. listening to your frontal cortex your frontal cortex is only receiving what the amygdala has to say and that's why kids get shot because they're pulling out a wallet that's why all of these horrible interactions that go badly is because the amygdala took over and all the logic and reason part of our brains just got shut out and we went eyeballs amygdala action totally and that but we don't teach that that's the thing that makes me crazy yeah. is that we aren't teaching people how to understand themselves because that was what saved me and not just from alcohol but from a host of yep. other selfishly driven uh impulse activities that I didn't understand. I just thought they were part of my personality, but they're not. And that's why the Buddhists got it right is because they managed to get enough of a gap between impulse and action to where you can say, wait a second, why am I doing this? Yeah. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Let me let this, this thought run its course real quick. Yeah. You know? I implemented a four day rule that where now anything in my life that shows up where formally I would say, I'll handle that. I stop right then and go, hang on a second. I call the uh, relevant parties and say, listen, give me four days to come up with a reasonable answer to this situation because all I'm gonna be doing right now is making something up and I wanna be able to get this right. Mm -hmm. Everybody takes that answer because they appreciate the respect that it conveys. Oh yeah. Now, right. Usually what happens is by the end of the second day, whatever the problem was has fixed itself. Right. Mm -hmm. And it didn't require any input from me. And I look like a genius and I didn't have to do anything. <laughs> it's the same thing as the advice we give early on in sobriety, right? I'm not here. I'm not trying to be the person that's just going to tell you what to do. What I'm asking is for you to involve people in your life that do have a functioning prefrontal cortex when you're trying to make decisions and you, if you truly understand and accept kind of the science of what's happening with your brain, then you understand that you do need someone else's brain to participate or you need a lot of time between the impulse and the, the kind of decision making, right? It's like, just involve your people, right? Call your sponsor, call your mom, call who a friend, right? And get some input because all of those people have a fully functioning prefrontal cortex, hopefully. And you're trying to make a decision probably out of that amygdala kind of part of the brain still right and if you get that then just allow people in but most of the time the ego goes hell no i got this right i i say all the time oppositional defiance can be your greatest ally in mm -hmm. recovery if you just flip the script because it yep. used to be don't tell me that i can't take 
five hits of acid and go to Tijuana because mm-hmm. I'm doing it, right? Mm-hmm. But now it's like, don't tell me I can't stay sober and uh, yeah. be, be a musician and be and live a happy, productive life. Like now it's Watch like me. now I'm just being stubborn about it, right? Right. And, but but that's the way you you have to understand those things about yourself and start to employ them in a healthy way. Like that's mm-hmm. the that's the trick. Like all the things, and I've been saying this for a million years, the thing that makes you most powerful is also the thing that will kill you. It, it, right. it, it's over and over again that I found that to be true. And I used to think that I had an unhealthy level of oppositional defiance until the last 24 months. And now I realize that our entire country suffered from mass amounts of oppositional defiance. For no real reason, honestly. Hmm. It, it's been the most interesting thing to try to teach my teenagers. Look, you you know, I have a son who has, has negative bias. He just, it's just his, that's the way he's made. And, and I keep trying to explain to him, like, every time you say you have to do something, try to tell yourself you get to do this. Like, mm-hmm. you don't have to go to basketball practice. You get to go to basketball practice. Mm. It's a big shift. I'm guilty of that too. I say it too. Oh, I have to go play this show this weekend. I'd rather be here, you know, mess around with you guys. But no, I get to go play this show. I'm a singer songwriter from Greenville, South Carolina that still has a job. Mm-hmm. Right? Really? You know, yeah, I get to go play these shows. Like, that's the thing. It's a mindset. And I think that's part of it too. And, and I say that I'm lucky to have gone to treatment and learned these things about myself to where I don't, I share responsibility with my consciousness now right instead of just riding along thinking i'm awesome that area of of what we're talking about makes me think a lot about people often ask me you know what got you sober how'd you get sober you know what was it that did it you know i know you you tried a few times you you know all that those kind of questions and the people always want to hear some big bad consequence and and Yes, there were consequences in my life. I mean, towards the end, you know, there was, you know, arrests and DUIs and those kinds of things. And, and yeah, there's a nice long list of external consequences. But to your point, my answer is never those things. It's never the fact that I almost had to go to prison or I got four DUIs or I lost this job or this money. It's always what was going on internally that really got me sober. You're suffering. The, the suffering. A hundred percent. And I was suffering before, but to your point, Mm -hmm. the awareness of it came Mm -hmm. and something, you know, I'm not exactly sure how and when it progressed or evolved to the point where I was capable of that awareness, but it came and that's why I got sober. So I would, I would, you know, uh, venture to say that what that is, is your final uh, instinct of Mm self-preservation. You, you, Mm, you got to that. You got to the moment that that mothers find when they lift a car off their kid. Yeah. Yeah. You know, like Survival. there's right. You it comes down to that's where you are. You're either going to lift the car off yourself and do something superhuman, or you're just gonna give up and die. And yeah. and sadly, both of those results are equally effective in changing other people's course when it comes to seeing this problem. I think that really does, even what you were saying, everyone, just about the the kind of consequences and them, them having to kind of get to a point where you're really experiencing them. Because sometimes there's consequences happening all around us that we're just not really internalizing, experiencing, or suffering from. They're just kind of happening. Mm-hmm. Or we're not aware because we're so numb or drunk. (laughs) I mean, I think that's one of the biggest pieces, just to bring it back around kind of to our listeners and our gray area drinkers of this also can become really alienating in the sense that if you have not reached a point where you identify with these things that we're talking about, it is very easy to then say, so I don't have problematic drinking or you know, my drinking must not be a problem because I don't have four DUIs and I don't have internal suffering and I don't have a gun in my lap and I don't, and there's a lot of I don'ts that keep a lot of people from looking at their relationship with alcohol. 
And that's the space that I think that's the gap that we really are trying to fill is because there's a lot of others who maybe have experienced small glimpses of those moments or Monday morning versions of those moments, but not necessarily kind of the full blown experience. And we're really wanting those people to have a space to just kind of go, what ideally would my relationship with alcohol look like? Would I have a relationship with alcohol and not necessarily use all of these big things as the reasons why they don't even need to take a look at it, right? So we try really hard to stay away from the negative consequences that may be associated with really far down the line severe alcohol use disorder and try to paint this picture of just not what's wrong with your drinking, but just what could be better with your drinking or what could be better with your life and does alcohol fit with that or not and and that speaks to the stat about 50 something percent of people that modulate away from alcohol on their own because it's like a highway right you're on you know there's all it's only one highway this is you're on it but there's about five more exits that you can get off right where where you can turn and <laughs> go on with your life but then past totally. those five ex- exits it, there's a really steep hill and then a <laughs> yeah, big a pile of a big pile of rocks yeah. you know and and there's no more exits and your brakes stop working and and the only the only thing you're going to be able to do is hit the rocks and then walk back you know and it's a long walk and, <laughs> and, and and that's what i say so so like I, a lot of the people i've talked with early early on have plenty of exits left to get off. And I go, and that's the analogy I make. Like, right. we have plenty of exits to get off. And the thing that usually helps is I always say, look, if you can, if you can do this by just taking the next exit, you win the game. Totally. You've gotten to experience all the yeehaw and the fun. You get to slip the trap. You <laughs> get to absolutely beat the game. And you get to basically steal all the good stuff out of a alcoholic life. And without having to experience all these consequences, doesn't that sound good to you? And then the horse thief part of them goes, yeah. Like I've never once heard a professional go, you know, your drinking is awesome. Why don't you get out while you're on top of it? I say that to people. I've all the never time. heard someone be like, you're so good at drinking. It's so successful for you that yeah, we out. should probably take a look at your relationship with alcohol. We only look at it once it's become problematic, but the, even the problem with that is we've only looked at it once someone has decided that their own drinking is problematic or someone has told them and then they're willing to come and sit in front of us and go, I think it's problematic. And we're really looking to talk to people at exit one. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and so, so I don't know what the professional criterion is anymore, but it used to be continued use after negative result. Well, mm-hmm. that's, every college kid in America. <laughs> yeah. Right. I mean, yeah. let's be honest. I, I mean, yeah. that, uh, <laughs> uh, okay. So th- that conversation can happen, but, but I know that like when I was a freshman in college, like no one had these conversations. Alcoholics lived under bridges. We laugh about this now, but my wife and I had this conversation. She was once again, very logically pointing out all the different reasons why I was chronically alcoholic. <laughs> and I very logically. No, I looked at her and was like, honey, I have a tomato garden. I was like, what? <laughs> like alcoholics don't have tomato gardens. Yeah, everything's great. I have multiple species of tomatoes and some peppers growing and I tend them. And I was like, I don't know what you're talking about. You think I could do that if I was an alcoholic? And I stopped drinking for a year once. Yeah. Come on. And, and like, I honestly, I, I wish I had a picture of the look on her face when I said it. Because <laughs> it just meant, it made total sense to me at the moment. And I, I tell this story, too, whenever I give talks at treatment centers. I tell the tomato garden story. And every all the alcoholics die laughing. And all the family. <laughs> And all the family members just cross their arms because we uh, all had that non sequitur conversation where, like, 
like you're just staring at each other going why can't you understand this yeah i i I brush i brush my teeth man yeah i'm not an alcoholic snowboard on the weekends it's like (laughs) oh great (laughs) that's nice everybody pees the bed occasionally come on why do you think they make mattress pads (laughs) why how it's my it's my bipolar how are you not getting this There's always something to point to, right? I think the most salient example that you gave actually is, you know, taking a year away from alcohol to prove that you can with the motive of being able to return to it, right, is such a great demonstration. And I do think that that speaks to a lot of great area drinkers. And I love that you've acknowledged that everyone that we know has at some point put some form of guideline around their drinking, even if it's been a really informal thought people have had to at some point make some kind of intention decision or change with their drinking. And if you are someone who has gone, you know, I'm going to take a week off so that everyone gets off my back or so that I can prove to myself that this isn't problematic, that's fine. And if your end goal or your motive is to do that in order to return to alcohol use, just maybe be willing to have a conversation with others about your alcohol use. Yeah. The pop-up timer just popped up. You're it. My part of it was, is that not only did I do the year, I think I strapped an extra couple of months on it just to <laughs> prove it. Right. You know what I mean? Like it wasn't, it was, it's that level. And that's the, like that, that's the part that, you, that everybody needs to realize is that it is extremely subtle. Um, the, how it infiltrates your mind and your thoughts. And I'll give you a perfect example. I had a thought, you know, a couple of years ago, I was riding in the truck and I thought, you know, it'd really be a good time to have a big nasty relapse in front of the kids. So they'd be <laughs> terrified of drinking. Yeah. Like that would be really good, good for them. Very, very if I could, if I could have like a really nasty relapse and then they could basically your duty so as a parent. terrified of alcohol because the stats say, you know, I, I like that was an actual thought. It's a new intervention style. Mm-hmm. I just started laughing out loud to myself. I was like, "Wow!" <laughs> I just there, had that thought. Yeah. There it is. There it is. But but you know, to somebody that's new in recovery, like in the first eighteen months, and that thought lands, like you can play with that, right? right. That starts. Oh, yeah. to, like, you, like it's hard to dissociate from things like that, and um, and that's another reason why verbalizing the ridiculousness to other people that understand is vital to saying mm-hmm. in recovery or in, or even sort of identifying your own things. But it's these little secrets that you keep inside your mind. Like maybe I should probably double check my, how much I'm drinking, but you keep yeah. that secret and you keep that secret. Well, you can keep that secret all the way to the grave. You know, <laughs> it's, it's really a matter of sort of, like, all right, well, let's talk about it. Let's shine some light on this. Let's go to somebody I trust that is an alcoholic and say, here's what's been going on. That's what we're trying to normalize with gray area drinkers is to start having these types of conversations and really getting honest about, you know, how much we're drinking and, and what it looks like in our lives and how it impacts our, our families and career and our mental health. I mean, that, that can be useful for anybody. Yeah, and one of the things I saw, I saw Rob Lowe do an interview recently, and I said the exact same thing he said. I was like, when I first got sober, I was like, I'm never going to have any fun ever again. Mm-hmm. Can't go to baseball games, can't go here, can't do that. Cause, you know, and, and that's, that, that's just not true. Yeah. I mean, no. after a while, I realized, like, I have the exact same sense of humor I did when I was drinking. Uh, I still think the same stuff is funny. Uh, I don't, you know, I do all the things I used to like doing, um, minus, you know, the staying out late and all of that, but the, but as far as all the activities and all the things that I used to do, I mean, there's, there's no, there's, there's no area of the world that's closed off to me. Right. Yeah. That yeah. I thought I was assumed, well, I guess I'm never going to have fun anymore. I'm never going to laugh and stuff and that, you know. Edwin, did you ever think that your music career would would be affected by by cleaning up? Uh, no. The music industry goes through these sort of 
cataclysmic changes pretty much every nine years. It's on a nine year cycle. It's usually technology based, but sometimes it's, it, I kind of already knew what my uh, trajectory sort of looked like. And my wife gives me a hard time because I've always had these side hustles and, and the whole reasoning behind them is I don't know how much longer this music thing is going to last mm-hmm. and blah, blah, blah. 31 years later, she's like, are you going to give me that speech again? <laughs> and I realized it's not for the 50 year olds. It's for the 20 year olds. That's mm-hmm. they're the, you know, mm-hmm. and so I never really pictured myself in the major label industry much farther than I, than it lasted. Honestly, it lasted about one record more than I thought it would. There's always been an instinct of like stewardship, like any, I feel like any, um, successful career has to have a component where you start to move aside and give help to the next class of musicians. Like, you know, I teach a songwriting class and, and I, I, I I just like to kind of step out of the way. Right. I don't take as many gigs and I feel like everybody, you know, there's a way to do that gracefully where you can, and I, I just get excited about seeing the new 20-somethings out there, you know, singing their truth. Like, yeah. I, I, it's way, to me, it's more exciting than staring into my own belly button and poetically describing the limit. <laughs> right. You know, I threw this question in here just for the sake of it, and and you don't even have to do this if you don't want to, but you went through a period where you were an absolute rock star, and you essentially lived the rock star life is there would you be open to sharing just a a fucking rock star story uh, yeah okay yeah uh bring it i was sitting at a blackjack table with charles barkley and darius rucker in vegas early in my career before i had really any hits but we were making money and or a little bit of money and and there I am sitting there with Charles Barkley and Darius Rucker and Charles is <laughs> Charles is betting fifty thousand dollars a hand. <laughs> I ran into him in Vegas one time too. And I was like, I was like, I was like, dude, Charles, how much do you have to lose before you lighten up? And he was like, million bucks. Oh my god. And I was like, well, I can't just sit here and be a punk. <laughs> start throwing it down so i started throwing down 200 300 500 a hand and very 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 quickly lost ten thousand dollars and let <laughs> and let me tell you let me tell you this is in 1995 right so yeah. 1995 i didn't have ten thousand dollars all in one place like i like those this is a serious problem right and so i had to call hey charles can we borrow a little Dude, I had to call my manager the next day. He was a friend of mine from college. He's an MBA. And he, he was like, back then, you know, he's 23 years old, but he sounded like a 60-year-old man. And I called him, and I was like, Rich? And he goes, yeah. I go, uh, I need to tell you something. He goes, what'd you do? <laughs> I might have lost $10,000 last night at a blackjack table with Charles Barkley. And he, he just hung up the phone on me. Click. <laughs> Ten minutes later, and to this very day, I cannot get a marker in any casino in Las Vegas. And if I cross the state line in Nevada, I can only withdraw two hundred dollars at a time a day on my ATM. I don't know how he did that. No way. I don't know how he did that. Even to this day, like oh my god, blacklisted. Yeah. We all need a rich in our life. I am on some kind of list. I'm out of it. Oh my God, that's amazing! In in the state of Nevada, in I the love state it. of Nevada, I'm 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 totally persona non grata there. We got one more question for you. Can you leave us with three of the most noticeable benefits that you've experienced from removing alcohol from your life? Uh, most definitely. I um top twenty. <laughs> no, I, I'm kidding. I can I'm tell kidding. you. No, I can tell you. Uh, I am now someone that other people can count on hell yeah and there is not anybody in my life that questions for a second if i tell them i'm going to do something for them 
they don't ever wonder if it's going to get done or not. Yeah. I'm the person they call now when, when, if things, something goes completely haywire and they need solid help, I'm that for, I'm the call. I get the call and I was never that. I was never that. I got that, that I was the guy that five days later got the call to tell me what happened. I'll talk about honor. Mm -hmm. yeah. We went through some really horrific stuff and I'll spare you the details, but it was, you know, early in the first five years of recovery where it, I, I, I said to myself, well, that's why that all this happened is because I needed to be this person at this time for mm -hmm. our family because mm -hmm. things were just falling apart. Right. So there's that. And then the other part is, um, I am happily, I'm happy to discover that I'm wrong now. Like yeah. whenever I find myself in a moment in life yeah. where something that I totally believed turns out not to be true, I go, oh, killer. Okay, great. Now I'm, now I'm a step closer to actually knowing what, it, what really is happening. And the only reason I, I can accept that moment is because I went to treatment and completely dismantled every foundational belief I had. And it led me to a much better place. And so now instinctively, when I reach that moment, I go, well, something good is getting ready to happen now. Like I'm, nice. when I find myself being dead wrong about something, I'm like, oh, this is getting ready to get better. <laughs> cause it all, cause, and, and that was, that's the thing. It, it speaks to everybody's fear of being wrong. Everybody's so afraid of being wrong. That they'll just go down, they'll just go down. I'm I'll just die with my erroneous belief. Yeah. Die thinking I'm right. But now it's like a you know, it's like a it's like to me, it's just a talisman that things are getting ready to get better. Those are the those are my three. Hell yeah, man. Love it. Love it. Edwin, awesome. thank you so much, brother. This was this was awesome. We appreciate you coming on. Thank you all for what you're doing, yeah, man. The information and opinions shared on this podcast are solely those of the hosts and guests and are not a substitute for medical advice. If you feel like you may need professional help, here are some resources. For the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration hotline, call 1-800-662-4357 or visit smsa.gov. For listeners in the Charlotte, North Carolina community, visit dilworthcenter.org or call 704-372-6969 or visit theblanchardinstitute.com or call 704-288-1097.